Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 98 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in St. Louis. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, Tom let me discuss two topics that really interest me, the Internet of Things and personal genome sequencing. We thought we'd turn the focus back over to Tom for this episode and take another look at the iPad and a brand new book from Tom. Tom, what's on our agenda for this episode? Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mall Report, we're going to talk about the iPad for litigators. Uh, In our second segment, we will talk about and mourn the recent announcement that Google will be ending the life of our favorite Google Reader. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start using the second this podcast is over. But first, let's get started on our main topic, and that's uh, the iPad for litigators. We have both felt, I think, Dennis, that since the iPad came out, that tablets were really a perfect fit, a great tool for litigators to use uh, to, to use in, in trying a case. Why, why, personally, do you think that tablets work for lawyers in the courtroom? I go back a long ways on this, and, and, and I also admit that sometimes I don't really understand the mind of the, of the litigator, but from the earliest days of tablet PCs, I mean, I had an HP tablet. I just thought it made perfect sense uh, for for litigators more than any other lawyers. I mean, it just seems like that the whole notion of the electronic legal pad is is right there. You can do all these things. You can write, you know, do handwriting. You can record things. You can display things. It works as a, a sort of center, computer center for what you're doing. Um, it just seems so portable, and it also it just fits in the same way that, that the regular legal pad uh, did. And that was even in the old days of tablet PCs. But there really wasn't a lot of uptake on, on those tablet PCs by litigators at the time. And there's a number of reasons. I think we've we've talked about that before. Some of them are just economic and, and getting new technology in, into firms. But with the iPad, um, as that really took hold, um, I, I think that you know the form factor, everything that people like about the iPad really came together. And then this, it becomes this great app environment. Um, you can do all these things that typically a, a litigator would want to want to do. And and I think so. We're seeing the uptake that I might have expected in the old days of tablets. I think we're really starting to to see that now. And so, bottom line for for me, Thomas, I think the the iPad is uh, potentially an awesome tool for litigators. But frankly, Tom, it's not as awesome as your new book about iPad for litigators, which uh, <laughs> or iPad in one hour for litigators, uh, which I can uh, assure people that you actually can read in one hour because I've done that. And, and that may be the the best way to consume it is to read it quickly, get a good overview, and then dig into some of the great details you you have there. Tommy, you want to talk a little bit about the book and how it, it fits into your view of, of how the iPad is, is impacting litigators? 
Absolutely. And, and I, I agree with what you've said about why the tablet is a good tool for litigators, but I want to add one thing to it. Having been a, a trial support person for a number of years before I, I left the law practice, I, uh, I, I realized that uh, with traditional trial presentation technology, a lawyer is not going to go into the courtroom and run sanction or trial director or some other type of evidence presentation tool that requires a laptop and multiple monitors and all sorts of hookup. Um, it's just too hard. It's too distracting. A lawyer has to be able to focus on the case and on the witnesses and the evidence that they're dealing with. And and I really view that the iPad, or tablets in general, but really I, I'm going to make the argument that the iPad iPad's the better tool because they have legal apps that the other tablets don't have. But I, I really think that it levels the playing field for lawyers who either can't afford to bring in trial technologists, can't afford to have assistants or, or paralegals or other associates come in and run the technology, or who just want to be able to go down to court for a hearing or to a mediation or for some other reason, to be able to, uh, to have all their evidence uh, on, 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 their, uh, on their iPad, to be able to use that, like you said, as a device to take notes, to show exhibits, to pick a jury if they want to, uh, to do to, to, to conduct legal research, to do just about anything that comes up during a trial, it can be done using an iPad. And, and that's really what I wanted to do in the book was was to demonstrate that it can be done. I, I've talked with lots of lawyers who are doing it and are successful doing it all the time. And so what uh, what what we what I kind of did in the book was to Really set it up like a trial, like you're you're getting your first case uh, from a from a client or or a, or a new case from an old client, and uh, it it shows basically how you can use the iPad from that case intake all the way through the jury verdict, uh, and we talk about many of the apps. Lots of the apps that are recommended for that. Uh, some of the uh, some of the accessories and the tools that you need to be able to set up your courtroom, and then also uh, some strategies, some practical tips for how to get into the courtroom and use it and be successful. From a lot of these lawyers who are doing it on a daily basis and who really know what it takes to 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 be successful working with an iPad in the courtroom. Yeah, Tom. I, I think one of the interesting parts of the book is where where you do pull together some of those the practical tips and advice based on on what lawyers who actually do this uh, you you know use the the iPad in connection with their litigation practice, you know what they've learned from it, and and some of it's you know just just really practical about you know what to expect, you know how to back things up, you know how to give yourself multiple options, you know what what to do if you're worried about running out of battery, and so so already I mean. This is kind of interesting to me, Tom, because I think you say in the book that really the iPad has been around for about two years or so, and you already have uh, this practical advice from people people using it that you can start. I mean, any reader of your book can start to leverage. But um, do you have a sense? I mean, how? I mean, I know you've you've found people. And I've certainly heard about people uh, using iPads in the courtroom, but. Do you have a sense of you know how much iPads are being used in litigation these days, I, both in sort of pre-litigation and then also in the courtroom itself? 
when I go and 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 talk to people about just using the iPad as part of practice, I am invariably approached by uh, by attorneys and even paralegals who talk about how here's how we're using the iPad in our practice. Uh, we'll load documents on for the attorneys to read. The paralegals will tell me, or I'm going to court and and I will I can run an, an entire trial uh, from my iPad. Uh, a good friend of mine uh, that I, I I've met through through the fact that he uses an iPad in trial is Jamie Munkus from Birmingham, Alabama, who was one of the first lawyers to record a, a multi, multi, multi-million dollar verdict uh, just using an iPad at trial. And I, when I give my speeches on the iPad, I, I indicate that, I, I, that I'm not telling this story to say that uh, get an iPad and you'll win big dollar verdicts. It's it's more to say get an iPad and it will not impede you. It will not uh, hurt. It will not obstruct you from succeeding or doing any of this. And I find that that although, uh, you know, I, I, sp- I this week talked to a lot of women attorneys um, in Miami at the DRI's Women in Law Conference. It was really a great group of lawyers, but most of them, even though they have iPads, aren't really using them to go to trial. And when they hear about how you can do this. You can be successful doing it. Lots of people came up afterwards and says we're really excited about it. Somebody, you know, came up and said we, I, they sprang for the, the 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 best app in the book, which is is not inexpensive. It's ninety dollars, but it's 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 one of the best apps out there for a trial presentation. And uh, you can see that once lawyers understand really how it can be done, then I think they're getting more excited and they're really starting to use it. But I also think that there are some easy, you know, easy things that you can you can do. And so you sort of see, well, if I start, you know, from the intake process and I'm, you know, I, I can understand really easily that I would, you know, take notes and do that sort of thing. And then you as you move down, you say, wow, it can all be done in that iPad environment. I, I think that's really amazing. And then then also I think that the I really like the notion that you uh, I mean, you use an example in the book, Tom, I think, where you talked about carrying in multiple briefcases full of, of legal research back in, you know, back in the day. And the idea that, you know, basically your iPad can be like this infinite, you know, set of, of legal research that you've done, infinite note taking, you know, infinite legal pad to take notes on. You know, it's it's really you start to say, wow, there are a lot of possibilities there. And then I, I think that um, that really intriguing thing that I can't wait to try myself, which is to say I can use the iPad um the little Apple TV and a projector and, you know, wirelessly, I can do all this presentation stuff, whether it's, uh, you know, PowerPoint or keynote slides or, uh, you know, show pictures of, of exhibits and documents and annotate them um, all using the iPad while I'm walking around wirelessly. It's it's I think that that would be really attractive to a lot of trial lawyers. Well, I think, and, and you raise you raise a couple of really good points, and and I'll, I'll start with the last two, and then come back to your first point is that that to me, uh, two of the most those are really two of the most exciting things about really being able to use a tablet in the courtroom is one. I, no longer having to carry around all those rule books and statutes and copies of case law and and the documents that you might need to to take to to support your case it, it can literally all be kept on the iPad whether you're whether you're using an online service to do research whether you have your rule books you can now have all of your rules and statutes on your iPad 
in one place. Uh, you've got access to PACER for federal court information very easily. And um, it's I, when I when I used to go down to court, even for a hearing, uh, I would here in Texas we have really thick books with the codes in them, and I would bring two or three of those. I'd have multiple copies of the case law that I had highlighted and was going to pass out. I'm not sure that you can always get a, 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 a you know get away with not doing that now. Um, you still probably have to have copies for the judge and uh, and opposing counsel, but you can go down there with such such a lighter briefcase than you had before and then and then you really hit the nail on the head with what I like so much is the Apple TV the ability to to use Apple TV to present wirelessly in the courtroom you can obviously uh, present with a with a standard projector with what they call the VGA connector. You can plug that into your iPad. You're sort of tethered, though, to either the podium or wherever the projector happens to, to, to come out. But uh, if, if, if the, the equipment in the courtroom is right, if you've got the right equipment, you can plug an Apple TV into the back of that, and you can walk around the courtroom. You can hand the iPad to the witness. You can uh, show things to the jury if the, if the judge will allow it. And you, it's the, I, I've only really known this through speaking uh, with Apple TV going, but the freedom to be able to walk around and feel like you're not tethered or you're not chained to that council table or to that podium really is liberating. And, and that's why it's, it's to me, it's no different. Like you said, it's, it is just like walking around with your legal pad, uh, only a much powerful, much bigger capacity legal pad than you've ever had before. And Tom, I, I think one, one thing that, that I picked up uh, from your book and my observations as well is that, that we really are pretty early in the evolution of, of the use of iPads and, and what you can, you can do with them. And so I, I think one thing I noticed in, in your book is sort of a sense of you know, possibility of here's what may happen in the future. And, and let me just pick out one, one area, Tom, and, and ask you, because uh, it seems like we're really early in this, but there's a lot of potential, and that's using the iPad uh, in connection with jury selection. No, and that's the that's the truth. Is that I think that the apps that are out for jury selection are some of the most inventive and interesting apps that are that are available. But they're also they also don't make a lot of sense right now. I I remember when I was picking a jury that uh, that it. I would use a legal pad and I would draw my grid on the on the legal pad so that it would uh, show for each juror and I could write in the information for each one and I thought wow with my iPad now I can I can really get some stuff done and I can really get information in the problem with these apps with the jury selection apps are that if you are in a jurisdiction like I was here in Dallas uh, when I would often not get the jury list until 15 minutes before they walk in the door sometimes five minutes before they walk in the door and that's not enough time to get all the information into the the app on the iPad. And so from that perspective, these apps are still early days. I've, I've been talking a lot with the developer of the JuryPad app, um, which I, I do like quite a bit. Um, and, and he's talking about sort of envisioning the day where the court clerk can come in and can actually send you electronically your jury list that will import automatically into these apps. And to me, that's nirvana. That would be really the, the best of all worlds for these jury selection 
application apps is to be able to have all that information immediately in there. You can sort it. You can uh, you can classify it. Uh, you know, one of the apps that I've that I've used for jury selection to demonstrate for jury selection has a button for uh, for each of the the major social networks, so that uh, when you plug in information on a juror, you can hit that button and it will go search for them on the social network to see if you can find any you know competitive intelligence or any background information on that person. These are really strong apps that are out there. But like you say, Dennis, the, I still think it's early days, even though the design on some of these is still quite strong. To make them really useful for lawyers, we have to kind of get a, 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 a an out-of-the-iPad solution to this and have the courts start to cooperate more with providing information on jury lists. I think that's the, really the way to go. And then, Tom, let me ask this sort of compound question here, but uh, What's the sense of what judges and juries think about the use of iPads? And if if our listeners are intrigued by this, what are sort of the first steps they might take to get started? Well, I think that judges, we'll, we'll cover judges first. Uh, judges just want you to be able to use your your equipment. They just want you to, whatever you bring into the courtroom, I think that more and more often they are tolerant of technology. Uh, you'll still find judges in, in areas, in rural areas especially, but in, in many areas where they they don't prefer technology and, and uh, they would they would rather you not use anything. But uh, most judges are tolerant. Uh, what I say in the book is is what I would have said as a, as a trial technologist is um, your, your number one job is to not embarrass yourself, not embarrass embarrass yourself or your client in, in, in the way that you use technology, which means sometimes it can take a lot of practice. And that's the, the rule that most of our experts give is to make sure you practice on all of this before you actually start to use it in, in the courtroom. But that said... Judges are using iPads on the bench as well, so they are very, I think, receptive to tablet computers. And then juries are starting to sort of expect technology. They really expect, uh, whether you're doing it from a laptop or from a tablet, they're expecting that you're going to use some sort of high-tech. And if you do it old school and you put a witness up on the stand to read a deposition transcript, they get bored very easily. They uh, they probably need a little bit more stimulus than we would expect them to or we would want them to. And uh, they, they react well, I think, to seeing cool tools. I hate to, to minimize it like that, but that's how they view it. Is it this is a cool way to to be able to get a point across? Um, and so I, I think that generally both both groups receive it well. If I were to give advice. Um, on, on where to start. Uh, obviously, I would say buy the book. The book gives a good overview of, of the apps and the things you need to think about. It's available at ABA Books. But, uh, but I- even, if, even if you don't buy the book and you have an iPad, start to think about some of the things that you do now in trial, uh, that you do now as a lawyer, and think about whether or not, and do some research and whether or not there are apps that can take that over. Like you mentioned, case intake is a big area where you can, uh, where, where you can have the iPad be not only your note taker, where you're taking notes about uh, what your client or your new client or your old client is telling you about a particular matter, but you can also have the iPad be um, sort of an intake device for your forms. You want uh, the client to sign a retainer agreement or a release or an authorization for medical records records, whatever. You can have all those documents ready to go on the iPad at that first meeting, hand the tablet over to them, they sign it immediately, and you've got those documents that you can send out. You don't have to worry about paper. You've got everything ready to go. So start with with those types of areas. What are the things that you uh, would would 
want to use an iPad to do in your practice, go out and find if there's an analogous app. Obviously, the book's going to contain a lot of those apps, but uh, just do some searches in the App Store. Look for, for legal or trial or deposition or jury presentation or evidence or something like that, and you're bound to come up with some apps that uh, that, that might work for you. And, and just try them out. Try, I think like you said, go slowly just to find one or two things and see if that helps make it easier for you to do the things that you're already doing and I think that'll that'll be a good start. Yeah, when I think iPad man, I just think outliner. Um and 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 yep. you know and and I think that might be a great place f- uh, to start. Well, I can predict that you're going to continue to have hundreds of people uh attend your webinars on iPad for <laughs> litigators as you had for the last I guess about a, a year but Tom, uh predictions, conclusions to take us out of the segment? Well, my conclusion, really, my I guess my 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 con- my prediction. It's more of a prediction than a conclusion. Is that uh, that that we've got? Uh, I think a an incredible opportunity to improve the way that we try cases. I know there are many naysayers out there who say technology doesn't make you a better lawyer, and I completely agree with that that sentiment. I, I don't think it makes you a better lawyer, but it can help you provide better services to your clients. And I absolutely believe that a tablet, the way that it works, the way that it simplifies the computing process for lawyers to, to bring it down to, to sort of the basics that lawyers of any technology background can appreciate and understand um, really makes it easier to provide good services to the client and 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 litigation tools and being able to go to trial or, or mediation or to a hearing is really an area where many lawyers are working and and I think that we're only going to see this increase I think that lawyers are going to continue to find better ways to do that and and it obviously includes using the iPad and, and other tablets uh, to, to get it done before we move on to our next segment, uh, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsor. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to introduce us to the world of cloud computing and how it can be beneficial to lawyers and law firms. Jack, we're hearing great things about cloud computing and its utility for law firms. Can you tell me why so many lawyers are excited about cloud computing? I think the most important thing about cloud computing from a lawyer's perspective is that it gives them the power and breadth of features that traditional desktop and server-based software uh, gives them without all of the IT overhead and inconvenience. So there's uh, all the benefits and none of the downsides of traditional desktop-based software, and they're able to focus on practicing law with a really solid cloud computing platform behind them. I think that's where you're seeing a lot of the the excitement is they're now able to realize the the potential of IT without all of the headaches. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. If you like listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, you might also like the podcast, Law Technology Now on LegalTalkNetwork.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. Now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. In this segment, we want to talk about our 
combined sadness about Google's recent announcement that it would pull the plug on our old friend, Google Reader. The announcement was not really unexpected. I mean, Tom and I have been talking about doing a podcast segment on alternatives to Google Reader for a few months, but we both love RSS feeds, and this is a big deal, both for RSS consumers and perhaps most importantly for bloggers who have built up a big RSS audience over the years. Tom, I noticed you tweeted your lament about uh, this announcement almost immediately, and you also signed a petition to try to get Google to reconsider. Have you Calm down a little yet? Uh, I have. I was passing through the various stages of grief when I when I tweeted and when I signed petitions, and I am pretty much convinced that nothing's going to come of that. Uh, but I have I have reached the acceptance phase, and I've actually reached the phase where I'm sort of interested and, and excited about trying new technologies. But I, well, I guess I want to start by saying that I, I worry sometimes when we have a conversation about stuff like Google Reader that we're we're talking to only a certain percentage of the lawyers who are listening to this podcast, and that we're maybe a little too inside baseball in terms of technology because when I used to go to to speak on internet legal research and I talked about the value of RSS as a research tool for lawyers I got a lot of blank stares and I got a lot of people who didn't use them I hope that I was able to convince some and to to make people interested in using RSS but I'd really be surprised to know how many of our listeners are actually using RSS and 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 so maybe for those of you who aren't I'll give the 30 second ex- description of, of what Google reader is and what it does RSS RSS is a technology that essentially creates a news feed from any website uh, that can be delivered to you, like an email, uh, but but through something like Google Reader. So if you go to the New York Times website and you you search down at the bottom of the page for RSS feeds, you will find that they have a news feed for every page in the New York Times. You can you can read the news from the bridal page or even from the obituaries if you wanted to get that news. And once you subscribe to it, like you would subscribe to a mailing list, you would get get regular reports of news whenever they were available. So you don't have to visit the website every day. You would actually get that research as it became available. So for bloggers, for, um, for, for, for researchers, RSS is a really valuable tool, and, and Google Reader really ha- has been the, the gold standard for getting it right, for being able to let you organize and structure your research. I was listening to a podcast with some technology journalists thinking that maybe it's really only them that's interested in tools like Google Reader because we we're moving now to what they call more social discovery of the news, using things like Twitter and Facebook and, and other sources to, to get information. Uh, I I, I'm, I'm sad that Google Reader's leaving because it was so comprehensive. I am, um, I, I, I have some ideas on what I want to do, but first I kind of want to get your your thoughts on this, Dennis. Are you uh, still in mourning? Uh, have you got a plan for the future, or what's up? I, I think I'm probably still at the denial process, uh, part of the process, but um, it's just really it raises a lot of questions for me because I I've lived in RSS feeds for a long time. You know, I I like to say that you know ten years ago I started my blog not to have a blog, but because I wanted to generate my own RSS feed. And I think that when people kind of understand that you use a, a a news reader like Google Reader and RSS, so that you can essentially see the new content from a bunch, even hundreds of different blogs or other resources without ever having to go to that page again and see them all in one place like a dashboard, once you get that concept, it becomes really 
you know, really an important thing. And I think for bloggers, um, there's sort of two aspects of this because to to see what's going on and the developments in the area that you cover in your blog, uh, RSS and and a newsreader like Google Reader gives you that way to kind of see what's happening, uh, you know, in other blogs and in things in your area. And then also you are typically going to have an audience. And in some cases, it's the best part of your audience who subscribe to your RSS feed and, and get your content that way. And so in my case, I see when I'm writing or when I post my blog, I see that somebody is consuming it in probably in Google Reader. And so um, I see that the best part of my audience probably is that RSS subscription base. And the idea that they're going to have to move to a completely different tool, and maybe they may not, they might not do that. They might, uh, you know, possibly move away from RSS. They may not add all of the, the, the blogs that they subscribe to now. I think it has uh, the potential to, to really damage the, the long-term subscription base of, of a lot of blogs. And, and so I have a sense that when I think about this, I need to start over. So that's, that's sort of one aspect. So me as a, an RSS feed producer, I have a certain set of concerns. And then I also you know, use uh, Google Reader to monitor so much information on a regular basis, and I can do that from from anywhere, and I I like that. Um, And I'm a little bit concerned about the, uh, as I look at alternatives and also where Google is headed, about this social aspect, because the thing I like about an RSS reader is that I can pick whatever I want and have that come to me. And so it can be stuff I'm just sort of interested in. It can be stuff I don't agree with. It can be just, you know, a, a mix of information. And I think as you, you know, introduce that social element, you, I think we start to, to head in that direction of what they call the daily me, you know, where I only get the stuff that's, or the echo chamber, where I only get the stuff that, you know, is is what I agree with and what my friends agree with, and, and I don't get the alternative. And so so my universe sort of narrows um, in a way because of that. And then I, I also don't think in terms of social time, I, I'm not sure that, you know, um, when I find something interesting that I think is would be interesting to you, I usually, you know, instant message you or email you with with the link. I don't really, in a, in a way, see that your consumption of my blog is the way to get that information to you. And I'm not sure that, um, you know, like your blog of the day feature is something that would ever get recommended, you know, through some sort of social uh, tool. Um, versus me just adding it. So I, I think it raises, there's a whole lot of, of concerns and we're early on and I sort of think that we were talking earlier time of how I think I'm just going to wait until we, as we get closer to July 1st before I make any decision what to do, which is sort of why I think I'm in the denial phase. But I, I think there's a lot of implications out there and, and not the least of which is, um, you know, you look at Google Wave, you look at some of the other Google things, and there's a lot of concern of what happens when you're using a tool um, and one of these big providers like Google or Facebook or or whatever uh, decides it's not part of their business model anymore and you really rely on it. So it, it's, uh, I think it's all of a sudden raised a, a bunch of uh, important issues that maybe were a little bit beneath the surface, but now they're front and center. 
Well, I think that um, I think with Google, that's a specific issue because they 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 have been taking the decision lately to sunset a lot of their what they call their lesser projects. And um, I'm I, from what I've read, they've they've considered Google Reader to be um, an underperforming and lesser project for maybe four or five years now. So it's, uh, it's something that's been a long time in coming, and they just took a while to uh, to pull the trigger on that. I, I, like like I said, I think I'm further along in the morning process because I want to. I'm interested in looking at other tools. There are a number of a number of sites who have said that they're going to pick up Google Reader's standard and uh, are going to develop their own back end that would essentially create a tool that was similar, if not identical, to how Google Reader worked. Um, those are Feedly and uh, and then Dig is actually talking about doing something like that as well. Uh, I've 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 I primarily consume my Google Reader content on my iPad and the app developers who that that. Our, our major in that area are Reader and Mr. Reader, and uh, they both said that they'll still be around. Uh, They're urging caution and patience and saying, don't worry, we got three to five months to, to think about this and deal with it. So there are a number of options out there. We'll put a link to some of the different options in the show notes. Um, so those of you who do use Google Reader, not the end of the world, you'll still be able to, to get to the information, uh, just need to make some decisions on the best tool uh, and, and some of the best options and and like you say, Dennis, it, it may not be until July that we know what the best option is. We just have to have to wait for that. Well, it did feel like the end of the world the other evening when the when the news hit. And I know that we're going to revisit this topic, and, and I, I'm sure we'll come back with with at least a segment talking about what alternatives we ultimately decide on. But now it's time for our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation you can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. I want to uh, talk about two books that are new from the ABA's Law Practice Management section. The first is Android Apps in One Hour for Lawyers. That's by uh, Dan Siegel, a friend of ours. Um, he is talking about the same way that my iPad apps in one hour. Um, he is talking about apps for Android users uh, in all the categories that matter for lawyers. So uh, so that's a very good and well-received book for lawyers who are on Android devices. And one that I've been looking forward to for a while now, it's called Social Media as evidence. It's by uh, Joshua Brionis and Anna Tagvorian. I hope I got that pronounced right. Um, but they are addressing an issue that we don't talk about a lot when uh, either on this podcast or really in law practice management circles. We talk a lot about how social media can help you develop your practice, but we don't actually talk about using social media if you need to, to, to grab your client's Twitter or Facebook page, or you need to get something from the other party on social media. Uh, what what's what are the laws regarding that? How do you practically get it done? How does that work? And how do you get it admitted in in court? It's an incredibly useful book. It's not a very long read. It's about as long a, a read as a as one of our one hour books. So uh, give it a read. Social media as evidence. Both books available at ababooks.org. I think that's it. And I read an early version of the Android Apps in One Hour for Lawyers book, and I, I think it'll be excellent. I think it's a really uh, will be a really useful tool for Android users. Um, what I have is is uh, once again going to the S. Dave Taylor blog, which I I love, and it's a welcome addition to my Google Reader uh, with all these nice little helpful uh, blog posts that I hope I'm able to continue to get after the, the death of Google Reader. But the one I want to single out is called "How Do I Permanently Block Coasterville on Facebook," and it's 
uh, one of these great little Dave Taylor things that you know Facebook users, what you find is that you've friended somebody, and in your in your newsfeed, you're going to find uh, you know all these things, updates about the games that they're playing. And, you know, maybe they've at- attained a certain level in those games. And it kind of clutters up your Facebook experience. And you, you say, I wish I could get rid of that. Well, there are ways to, to do that. Um, and Dave Taylor's blog post goes through it. Actually, in, in our Facebook in one hour's uh, For Lawyers book, we also go through some of that. But in the Coasterville thing, he does something that's really cool is that Coasterville is not actually a game. And so the standard tool that you might use to to block it or hide it um, doesn't work. And he goes through what you can do with some of the more annoying and per- persistent things that may show up from some of your friends. And so uh, a great uh, post, with, with a, and it's a good uh, primer on the techniques you would need in Facebook for blocking and hiding things. And then at time, I just want to say, finally, uh, this is episode number 98. Uh, we got another show, and then it'll be a milestone for us uh, that we're really looking forward to, uh, episode 100 of the Kennedy Mile Report. We're working on some ideas f- for that show, uh, but we want to know what you think we, we should talk about on that show. So send us suggestions to tkmreport at g- gmail.com uh, in the next week or two, or you know, reach out to either one of us uh, with ideas that you might have or questions you might want to pose to us for, for that, that 100th episode will be an exciting episode indeed. So that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Information on how to get in touch with us, as well as links to all the topics we discussed today, is available on our show notes blog at tkmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes at lawtechnologytoday.org or on the Legal Talk Network site. Our archives of previous podcasts are still available in iTunes and on the Legal Talk Network website. And if you have questions or suggestions for upcoming episode topics, please email us at tkmreport at gmail.com or send us a tweet at tkmreport. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. Get our new episodes automatically by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, the Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network. <laughs>